Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 3rd of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The determination of families in OMA who refused to give up fighting for justice resulted yesterday in the British government announcing it will establish a statutory independent inquiry into what happened and if the darkest day in this island's history could have been prevented. The Omar bombing of the 15th of August 1998 was... A horrific terrorist atrocity committed by the real IRA, which caused untold damage to the families of 29 people and two unborn children who were tragically murdered, and two and the 220 people who were injured that day. To this day, it remains the largest loss of life in a single incident in Northern Ireland. It took place mere months after the signing of the landmark Belfast Good Friday Agreement. The Northern Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris. Ten years ago, the British government decided not to hold a public inquiry into the OMA bombing. Michael Gallagher, who lost his son Aidan in the bombing, pursued a judicial review of the decision not to establish a public inquiry into whether there had been a failure to investigate whether the Omar bomb could have been prevented. Then, in 2021, the Northern Ireland High Court agreed that plausible steps could have been taken to prevent this atrocity. There were four grounds that led to that judgment. These relate to the handling and sharing of intelligence, the use of cell phone analysis, whether there was advanced knowledge or reasonable means of knowledge of the bomb, and whether disruption operations could or should have been mounted, which may have helped prevent the tragedy. So, the murder of Aidan Gallagher, plus 28 others, and two unborn children, could have been prevented. I've met Mr Gallagher and representatives of the support group he chairs, the Omar Support and Self-Help Group, uh, which works to promote an advocate for the needs of victims of terrorism. I visited the site of the bomb with them, a very sobering experience, and cross the road to the Memorial Garden, which commemorates all those who lost their lives. A quarter of a century later, families will never forget. And then yesterday, this historic statement. Mr Deputy Speaker, I intend to establish an independent statutory inquiry into the Omar bombing. I've informed Mr Gallagher and members of the Omar Support and Self-Help Group as well as representatives of family, families moving on of this decision. And I'm delighted to say we have Michael Gallagher joining us on the line once again. Michael, as you know, is uh, Aidan's father who lost his life in the OMA bomb. He's also the chairperson and spokesperson for the OMA Self-Help and Support Group. Michael, good morning to you. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I'm sure that this is just another one of the many steps you've already taken on this long road, which is far from completion, but it is a a significant step and uh, I think it's one you need to be congratulated on. Good morning. Thank you, Michael. 
it is. It's uh, it's quite surreal to waking up this morning and know that it's a different morning from yesterday morning. A different morning because our lives will take a different turn. Up to this point, we over the over the past almost twenty five years, we have been meeting with politicians and other influential people and asking for their support for a public inquiry. Thank God the Secretary of State yesterday has changed the game now. We we have a public inquiry, and this is hugely important. And the terms of reference, in other words, the objectives of this inquiry will be very important. Uh, that, I guess, is the next step in this process. Uh, and will you have any involvement in drawing up those terms of reference? Well, I would like to think that we do. Uh, I think it. I think it is important that, that we do have a, a say in what sort of material, what we're examining, and what issues we look at. I know that the, the Secretary of State has outlined uh, four individuals. These are the areas. <clears throat> we, when we went to court, we we uh, noted ten issues that we wanted the judge uh, and the court to consider, and. Uh, w- we failed on six, and we got four, and those are the four the Secretary of State read out. But uh, it's important to note that the government never appealed that decision. Had they appealed it, we would obviously have went strong on the other six that we didn't get, and we may have got more. But uh, I'm, I'm relieved that we have got the public inquiry, and let's see where that takes us. Um, you know, I don't think that the, 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 the inquiry could, if issues arose that was relevant, I think it would be very difficult for the chairman of the inquiry to say we're not looking at it. So mm. we don't, we, and these issues, and we know that from the many inquiries that have uh, uh, happened in Dublin, um, that uh, you don't know where it will take you and you don't know what it will throw out. And also, it's important to say, that in Dublin they call them tribunals and there's been many tribunals where people have actually faced criminal sanctions after that through information that was processed during that tribunal so I, I, I am quietly confident that we will get the answers that we need at this inquiry and that this inquiry will take place even if uh, the British Parliament enacts its legacy le- legislation it will because uh, the the legacy legislation is from 1966 until April 1998, and the Omagh bomb was in August 98. So we're, we're you know we're outside that threshold. But I mean, I am one of the people that is constantly campaigning for that bill to be put in the rubbish bin. I feel that every victim should have the same right as we had yesterday. No matter what their background, uh, those families have a right to know the circumstances of the death of their loved ones. And that's, uh, there's a number of us, uh, there's, a, there's quite a lot. I mean, all the groups in Northern Ireland and all the political parties oppose this legislation. But there's a small core group of us from different backgrounds, uh, affected in different ways by the troubles. Uh, and we have campaigned. In fact, our campaign group was in, earlier this week in Brussels meeting people from uh, the European Parliament 
and, and trying to persuade them to put pressure on the British government to uh, abolish this bill. I think it's when you take justice mm. away from one section of the community, it's, um, it, it's just not right. Michael, um, what do you hope the inquiry will achieve? Uh, do you think that it will establish facts for you or do you think that it will vindicate what you've been saying for 25 years, uh, which uh, in part is that this was preventable? Well, I said to the Secretary of State in the meeting we had with him before Christmas, and you know, we highlighted a number of failings and deficiencies. And I said, if I've got it wrong, please show me where I've got it wrong. Um, you're quite right. I have said for years that the Oma bomb was a preventable atrocity. Preventable because there was a huge amount of high-quality intelligence available to both governments, in fact, even the American government, before the bombing, and uh, there were several warnings. And how that intelligence was disseminated, <clears throat> I think it's important that we examine it. Um, and, you know, it, it, sometimes the intelligence services... And, and quite rightly, that they're beyond the law. But I feel that when it comes to something as serious as death, they they need to, they are within the law like everyone else, and and they need to, um, you know, they they need to qualify what they've done, and that, and, and that is important. And the the difference between this inquiry and the DeSalvo inquiry, which you remember was carried out into the murder of John Finucane, was that it was a, a, a desktop exercise. This is this will be an inquiry which can compel mm. <clears throat> excuse me, will compel witnesses. We can ask those witnesses uh, who did you talk to? What decision did you come to? What was the outcome of that decision? That's the ability for victims families to be able to do that is hugely important. Now there may be everybody may have done everything right and if that, I, I would be delighted if that's the case, but I, I suspect otherwise. Uh, and I just feel that those facts need to be examined and where there are failings and deficiencies, but equally where there were things done well, that must be learned and passed on to others so that if they face a similar atrocity, a tragedy, um, a plane crash, a train crash, a chemical spill, they're mm. in a better position to manage that. 31 people dying. It must be. You, you just can't say it's one of those things. There has to be lessons learned. And you believe, uh, beyond a, a doubt, I'm sure, uh, who was responsible uh, for the bombing, uh, and that view was supported in a civil action you took against five men. It was. We, we took a civil action against five named individuals and we got a judgment against four of those individuals. Um, but more importantly, um, during that process, we got a, whole, a huge amount of disclosure, which um, when Baroness Nula alone was carrying out her inquiry in 2001, she didn't, ha she didn't have that information. The authorities actually withheld information from her. Um, and, you know, some of it she learned through the back door that it was there and then demanded it. But here we are today, 25, almost 25 mm. years after the event, there's a lot more information out there. 
in, in fact, I would say it was voluminous. Yeah, and you talk about uh, the intelligence uh, that was available to the authorities, to the authorities both sides of the border. Indeed, uh, there were phone warnings in advance, weren't there? Well, there was a there was a number of uh, there was a, a number of warnings and indicators. Um, for example, just to give you an example, GCHQ, which is the British. Um, Electronic Listening Centre um, and decoding, uh, they, they monitored the phones of the people who planted the bomb in Oma. They monitor, monitored the phones. They came live in Dundalk. They travelled up through the country, across the border to Oma, and then returned back to Dundalk. But that wasn't the only time that those phones were monitored. There was a number of bombings before Oma, and, this, and uh, one of the same phones was used. Uh, that that phone, uh, the last three digits was three five three, and uh, that was that. What I'm telling you is public information, mm. and th- that that uh, w- was one of the strong issues that came out in the in the civil action. So there there, there is a wealth of information out there. The OMA was part of uh, what's called a linked incident. There was thirteen incidents before Oma and they were linked that means there was um, th- there was evidence it could have been fingerprint, it could have been fibre it could have been DNA uh, it could have been the methodology of how the device was put together that indicates that the same people were involved in those 13 bombs so that's, that says that there were 13 missed opportunities before Oma to intercept the people who were carrying out these activities so yeah, I mean, there's there's a huge amount of evidence, a huge amount of material there, and uh, I think it's important that that is bottomed out, and uh, there may be a plausible explanation for it, or there may not. But but let's let's do that. And uh, as a bereaved parent, I feel that it is important mm. that we do as much as we can to find out what mm. what went wrong. That that that's the important. And today is the start of the long road of truth, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Did the authorities turn away? Uh, and if so, why were they turning a blind eye? Sorry, what? I, I mean, why did they not act? Uh, if this oh, <coughs> intelligence... Well, that, 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 that's, the, that's the key question here. Um, you know, why were they not proactive? Why did they not disrupt those people? Uh, that that is the question. Mm. You know, there there are various maybe various answers to that. Maybe they were just not cooperating uh, interagency the way they should have done. I, I I really don't know the answer to that, but I know what the result of it was: thirty-one people dead. Mm. And uh, I, I think that somebody has to answer those questions that you've just asked. Mm. Uh, and of course, uh, your son Aiden uh, was one of six teenagers, wasn't he, uh, who died yeah. in, in the bomb? There were six children. Uh, there was a woman pregnant with twins. Overall, thirty-one people uh, who lost their lives. Uh, but yeah. many people uh, with life-changing injuries. Uh, how oh, many? How many were injured in that bomb? There were two hundred and fifty injured. But um, you know, the other 
statistics. I, I don't like statistics because they dehumanise the victim. Mm. But 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 we, to, to see the overall picture, we have to use them. Mm. There was eleven mothers died in the Oma bomb. This was a bomb of children and and women, and you know that. I think that's one of the things, apart from the numbers, that's one of the things that horrified the whole country. Mm. And um, I think there was, personally, I think there wasn't the political appetite to go after those people. Mm. That's my personal opinion. Because of the peace process? Absolutely because of the peace process. Because this, this was after the Good Friday Agreement? It was. It, well, I mean, we, we were still in a very shaky position. But, you know, there's no doubt in my mind, after the Oma bomb, there's not a civilised person in Ireland, either north or south, that would have wanted to see those people put behind bars with proper evidence. There's no doubt. And I think the politicians got it wrong, the... Um, they, they, they should have let the police on both sides of the border do their job. Um, yeah, it, mm. it, it's yeah, it, it, it is hugely, hugely difficult. I mean, um, I, I, I listened to Baroness alone last night. She was on uh, the BBC View Pro, Northern Ireland View program, and she she said that the information wasn't available to her at the time, and she urged as many people as possible to cooperate. You know, there's mm. there's this feeling that this is a witch hunt against the police or the military or the intelligence people or whatever. Well, those those people that come forward will receive proper representation. And what what have they got to hide? You know, it's mm. uh, it, it's just important that, that their story is told. They mm. have the opportunity to tell their story. Mm. Well, this is a, an, an inquiry that uh, uh, the British government has said it will establish. Uh, but does the story end there? That actually is a question that uh, the British government is asking. And we can hear just a, a little bit more uh, from uh, Chris Heaton-Harris uh, when he spoke in Westminster yesterday. Madam Deputy Speaker, you may be aware that in his judgment, Justice Horner expressed a desire that a simultaneous Article 2 compliant investigation occur in Ireland. He recognised that it was not in the court's power to order a cross-border investigation, and nor is, is, is it in my power as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to do so. But I remain in contact, in close contact, with the Irish government on this issue. Michael, if you bear with me for another second, we'll hear what the Taoiseach, Leo Bradker, said in response about Irish cooperation with this British investigation. The Dioma atrocity was a terrible crime uh, committed by uh, the real IRA. Um, it was an act of barbarous inhumanity and I remember it well uh, and it's important I believe um, that uh, those families who are still suffering today uh, get the truth uh, and answers that they need and they deserve. Um, we haven't heard the formal announcement yet from the UK um, but if it is the case that the UK is establishing a public inquiry uh, we welcome that. Um, we want to find out what happened and whether it could have been prevented. It's important to know those things. Um, and we're also very aware that there was probably uh, a cross-border element to this terrible crime. Uh, and we're going to sit down with the UK authorities and work out how we, how we can contribute to that. 
Um, we certainly won't be found wanting uh, in terms of making sure that um, any aspect of this that happened in our jurisdiction, on our side of the border, is fully investigated as well. And we'll have to agree the right mechanism as to how we can do that. Right. Leo Vranker speaking before the Northern Ireland Secretary's announcement, uh, saying, though, uh, that the Irish government will not be left wanting. What do you want that to mean in reality, Michael Gallagher? What do you want to see from the Irish authorities? Michael, this is the 5th of February. On this day last year, I was with a group of victims who met the then Taoiseach, and Michal Martin. And the purpose of that meeting was really to get the Irish government support against the legacy bill going through the House of Commons. And we, this was a variety of victims from different backgrounds. They, 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 they told their story. And um, then when it came to me, uh, that you know, I, I said to the Taoiseach that I uh, thought it was important that he meet with myself and a group of victims to, because he was obviously aware of the, the statement made by Judge Horner. Um, and uh, I, he said, yes, he would meet with us. And I gave him, a, a handwritten invitation across the table. Now, I was down at the end of the summer on a similar meeting and uh, the, the, a Senator, Emer Curry, which uh, I know very well, was at the meeting and I gave Emer Curry a letter to give to the Taoiseach to remind him of the commitment he made nine months before. And also at that meeting, uh, the, the tarnisher was there and I we, we had a short conversation and I told him I gave the letter to Ema Curry to get to give to the to, to the Taoiseach and I asked him would he speak to the Taoiseach and he said he would as I sit here today I have not received any invitation acknowledgement from the Taoiseach and, and now on the 15th of uh I think it was the 15th of December, we, we had a change of T-shirt. That's hugely disappointing. Uh, I welcome what the T-shirt said yesterday. We want to cooperate. We want to work with the Irish government. We want to work with the British government. We're, we're not criminals. We're just victims. And I think it's important that the Irish government engage with us as soon as possible because you, you have mentioned... Um, earlier on about setting up the terms of reference and, and you described it as the objectives of the inquiry. If, if the Irish government don't engage, we have significant material, and I told the Taoiseach that this day last year, of voluminous amount that will be introduced into that inquiry. I would prefer that the Irish government work with us I think I think it's it's just what I said earlier on about the about the police and the military and the intelligence peoples. They have a contribution to make. I think there's a huge contribution from the Irish government because the facts are that the the perpetrators planned, prepared, and delivered this bomb from the Republic and spent forty minutes in Northern Ireland and returned to the Republic. Therefore, 80% of the evidential opportunities lie within the Republic. There is, uh, and we, we talked earlier about 
the agents, uh, you know, who were operating at that time, the MI5 FBI agent was based in the Republic and also cooperating with the Garda. But there were other agents connected that connected uh, and controlled. There was an agent controlled by Sergeant Garda Detective Sergeant John White operating in the Dublin area and uh, he was heavily involved. He wasn't a dissident himself, but he was supplying material to the dissidents. Um, there's a huge range of issues around that. Um, I, 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 I would beg the Irish government to engage. We, we certainly want to cooperate and work with them. I think that's important. Michael, as I said at the beginning of our conversation this morning, this is probably just another of the many steps you've already taken and many more to come. But congratulations on the achievement yesterday and the announcement that the British government has decided to establish this commission of inquiry. And thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme. Thank you, Michael. That's Michael Galler, whose son Aidan uh, was one of 29 people who lost their lives in the Oma bomb. One of the 29 people was a woman pregnant with twins. Michael is also the chairperson and spokesperson for the Oma Self-Help and Support Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, it'll be interesting to see where that inquiry goes next. SH is uh, the signature on uh, the WhatsApp message that says the dogs on the street knew there were prior warnings before the OMA bomb. The question is, who failed to pass on those warnings? Thank you indeed for your message to the programme. As I said, that's a WhatsApp message. If you want to WhatsApp us, you can do so on 086 1800 658. You can use the same number if you want to just text us in the old SMS way. That's 86 658 If you want to make comment on the programme, our telephone number, if you prefer to ring us, is 041-983-2000. And you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, to the doll yesterday and uh, this issue of disability entitlements being denied to people intentionally and the government not having a legal foot to stand on. Uh, there were some serious accusations made against the leader of uh, the Fianna Fáil party yesterday. Here's Sinn Féin's Pierce Doherty. Up to 12,000 citizens of this state, many of them with profound disabilities, were denied their entitlement to a modest allowance paid to them in recognition of their disability. They were denied this as a result of a cold, callous and heartless strategy developed at the heart of government. A cabinet that you were a senior member of as Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time. The decision that your government took at the time are laid bare for all of us now to see in relation to secret documents that have been reported on. Punisher, you were party to this strategy. You were party to agreeing this strategy as a senior member of government and of cabinet at the time. And the Tanisha Michal Martin had this response. The public policy was transparent from the outset in respect of both disability allowance and in respect of nursing home payments. Going right back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, 1990s. Public policy was very transparent in respect of nursing homes, um, that people were 
paid a contribution um, and so forth. And that was by virtue of regulations that had been um, put into place. Many decades later, it transpired uh, that those regulations were not consistent with the primary act. That was the fundamental flaw. And at that time, the government of the day took a decision to retrospectively pay back on the repayment scheme in respect of those availing of public nursing homes um, payments that had been taken um, from them. In relation to disability and the DPMA, a similar situation um, pertained uh, in respect of, again, the public policy being very transparent, that that allowance was introduced in the first instance to provide for people who were on very low incomes when they were living independently, but that when they went, once they went into residential care, that those payments were discontinued. Again, that carried on for quite a long period of time and was publicly transparent. Uh, a case then emerged, uh, and again, it was Minister Seamus Brennan joined the government that you talk about who corrected that. Right, uh, that's uh, the Taunister speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Um, if you were listening yesterday, you'll know that the Dáil sat yesterday, and that was the seventh time this year that the Dáil sat. Uh, and once again, uh, it's been dominated uh, by charge and counter-charge legacy issues and uh, nothing to do with uh, the pertinent issues of the day, as important and very important they are too. Uh, but uh, the year started off, of course, with uh, the resignation of Damien English. That was something we were speaking to Neil Richmond, his replacement on the programme yesterday, in an email that came to me from David Carney. says, Michael, what sort of country uh, allows a government minister to do this, to be filling out that form incorrectly and then go into hiding when other government ministers, his friends and party, go about whitewashing this on a daily basis? Basis praising and defending this minister. This is a very serious matter, and for uh, another government minister such as Neil Redmond to go on the public airways to staunchly defend his friend Damien English is wrong. It is beyond disgust and something that only. Uh, corrupt countries would condone or allow. Uh, The Daily reported further serious wrongdoings of this and past governments reveal nothing but a self-surfing elitist circle of greedy politicians only out for themselves and to protect one another regardless. We need change now more than ever, says David. Thank you very much indeed, David. Uh, I'd imagine you could have phrased it stronger. (laughs) Actually, he did. Uh, I did uh, sort of water down a little bit. Uh, But thank you indeed. I do appreciate that. Our email address, by the way, is michael at lmfm.ie. Now, we were talking about dogs on the programme again yesterday, as indeed we have been over the course of the last few months since that terrible attack on the nine-year-old boy in Enniscorthy in November and indeed uh, the ongoing sheep uh, attacks and worrying sheep worrying and uh, sheep kills uh, that we've been hearing about. Uh, but we've also been hearing that every dog is dangerous and uh, we heard a little bit uh, from an Oireachtas committee on the programme yesterday and uh, dog behavioural expert Nancy Creedon. Uh, we'll hear a little bit now about what Nancy Creedon has to say about small dogs and other dogs. When we get goosebumps at an X Factor audition, that's our body's again going into that sympathetic But they're in the background mode at that stage. Yeah. So what will happen is the body's going into the parasym- going into the sympathetic nervous system dominant state, and what you'll often see humans, dogs, Taylor Swift shake it off. When you see dogs doing a shake off, if they have been wet and in the water and they do a shake off, normal. If something to that dog was a bit of a stressor and the dog's body started to go sympathetic nervous system, you'll and the hair might be standing up in the back of their necks. You'll see them do a shake off, and that's them trying to calm themselves down back into that parasympathetic dominant state. So so all these tiny little things 
are fundamentally important. When I teach someone about their own dog and I explain that concept about what's happening and how critical it is to keep your dog calm, they then know that. And then they see their dogs getting hyper, the kids are playing football, I'm going to put the dog back in the house. And that's one of the big triggers that I see for dogs becoming reactive, biting, when they're having fun with the kids in the garden. I was speaking to the hairdresser earlier and her daughter got a very bad bite from a collie when she was whizzing around on rollerblades that were flashing up. So that's going to get that dog all excited, all wound up, and suddenly that dog that wouldn't normally bite is biting. It's an instinctual, natural behaviour for dogs to bite. Every single breed of dog will bite, every single dog can bite, um, and it's something that often is suppressed when they're, when they're living as pets, when they're in front brain mode, they're thinking logically, they're being themselves. When they become hyper and out of control, they're going to do things that are more instinctual for the dog. All right, interesting advice for dog owners there. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Yeah, there were 444 complaints about antisocial behaviour on trains last year. It's a 60% increase on the 277 received the year previous. It relates to the Dublin Belfast and Dublin Cork lines and released under the Freedom of Information Act to News Talk. Many of uh, these incidents are linked to drunk and disorderly behaviour. Let's uh, talk to Dermot O'Leary, General Secretary of the National Bus and Rail Union, the MBRU. Good morning, Dermot. Thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, uh, how is it that people are drunk on trains? Are they getting on the trains drunk or are they getting drunk on the trains? Well, look, I think Irish Rail have moved over the last number of years to prevent alcohol consumption on trains. Uh, and look, it's probably impossible to police it. You know, that people, you know, they, they do bring drink onto trains, unfortunately. But a lot of them come on the trains already uh, inebriated, if you like. And it's not just drink, obviously, that there's drugs involved as well. So it's an issue that obviously has been causing quite a concern for us for a number of years. We've been highlighting it, as you know, on your own show, many mm. others. Um, and there's, so the, again, the, there's the bar, though, on the Enterprise, isn't there? The bar on the Dublin-Belfast Enterprise train? Yeah, there is. Mm. There is, As I understand, there is. But I, I, I do believe that the Irish have made that move. But again, look, I suppose there's nothing in the figures that surprises us. Uh, and it's an issue that, you know, as I said, we've been highlighting. Mm. We've been calling, as you will know yourself, we've been calling dedicated guard the Public Transport Division for quite a while now. And lots of the politicians, you know, even up around your own area, are very supportive of that. But unfortunately, their words are not being turned into the necessary legislation and again all members and again members of the public obviously uh, you know they're witnessing this behaviour address the tail end of it in lots of cases mm. so it, unfortunately it's not getting any better and it's got to a stage Michael I suppose where a lot of our members are not reporting some of the stuff that goes on there as mm. you call it a bit normalised so by 444 is a reported figure uh, we believe it's a lot more than that. And, of course, it's confined, as you said, to Cork, Dublin, Dublin, Belfast. So, yeah. you know, there are commuter areas as well. And there's also, you know, trains in other areas around the country. That, you know, it's far and wide at this stage. Uh, I've heard staff members on the trains talk about animalistic behaviour and uh, the type of uh, drunken behaviour that uh, would be taking place, let's say, in the bar on the train, but wouldn't be allowed in a, a, a bar outside of the train, in an ordinary Main Street bar. Well, that's, that's, look, that's the problem. The environment is, obviously the environment is a lot different uh, in an ordinary bar than there is in a, in a bar on a train, for example. But certainly uh, in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the question for me always is, and more so to politicians than anything else, you know, what are they going to do about it? Mm. It's just unfortunate, Mike, we're going to be talking one of these as about some, someone either a staff member or a community being seriously injured or worse. Uh, and I don't, I, I, I dread that day, and it's one of those addictions I don't want to have to come through. Mm. But it just seems to me that the ingredients are there. 
Yeah, for that. Uh, I've seen the opposite as well. I've seen groups of people who obviously had drink on them get involved in sing songs and getting on like a house on fire. Uh, people coming from the north and uh, joining people uh, who live in the south. Uh, but one of uh, the problems uh, that is being reported in these complaints is anti-sectarian uh, behaviour by people. Yeah, that happens as well, and and and, and racism, and, and, mm. and you know, I suppose. Not verbal assaults, physical assaults, uh, all based on sectarianism and racism as well. But look, I, I, I suppose it, the vast majority of people, it should be pointed out, of course, the vast majority of people that travel on trains and indeed buses travel, mm. you know, trouble free. It's the small minority that are causing this, but unfortunately, as I keep saying, that small minority are, are, are I suppose, we're under risk really. Mm. Uh, and at a time, I suppose, Michael, when there's hundreds of millions rightly being invested into public transport, the concern we would have is that trying to encourage people out of their motor cars and in Mm. How could you do that when it likes to me uh, as, as long as yourself talking about this type of stuff? Mm. Yeah. So there's a bigger picture of the resident here. And look, National Transport Authority, they're responsible for overseeing uh, public transport. And when we talk to them, you know, for help in, in trying to, you know, get the gather public transport mission set up, it falls in their fairs. In actual fact, mm. they never speak to us about anything as far as they're concerned. Uh, the trade unions that represent frontline workers have no place mm. uh, sitting across from them. And that's an issue that we've been, you know, highlighting as well for many, many years. In, in the absence of a, a transport police, would you say that people use the trains at their own risk? Well, unfortunately, because I said most of the journeys are trouble free, but it is unfortunate. And that's just the reality, of course. But I was real to be fair to them, you know, and I'd be on criticizing companies from time to time, obviously. But in this occasion, I was real to be have invested an awful lot of money in security. The problem with security is it doesn't have the powers of attention uh, and arrest. You know, there's no sanctions for people. And the sooner that people realize there is sanctions, and that's been the experience in lots of other countries across the world that have either transport or the transit police. Um, the type of behaviour we're witnessing is reduced. Serious crime is serious mm. crime. It's a societal issue that will continue, obviously, but certainly some of the stuff that has been reported has disappeared in those other countries. And again, look, politicians, uh, and again, some might be listening, and the listeners, uh, you know, will be talking to politicians. You know, they're very, they're very, they, they, they issue very soothing words to us, and, and, and you know, now they're head in agreement when we call for this. And we do know the guards have a resource issue, we're quite aware of that. But at least if the government moved towards setting it up, uh, there will be some light at the end of the problem. Dermot, thank you, as always, for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Dermot O'Leary, General Secretary of the National Bus and Rail Union. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Minister for Integration is looking for accommodation uh, for immigrants. He's asked every government department to see if there's empty buildings anywhere in the country where refugees can be housed safely. We're talking about sports centres, conference facilities, art centres, student leisure centres, other large buildings. Uh, The idea is they may have camp beds uh, in these buildings or simply sleeping bags or mattresses on the floor. Uh, But it is because of a very desperate situation uh, and there is no accommodation for people who are seeking international protection here. And uh, that's in breach of the Geneva Convention. Uh, We are obliged to provide people seeking asylum with accommodation uh, and indeed other international agreements uh, for that matter. And it is no surprise, given the scale of immigration into this country, that the Minister is desperate. Some will say the planning could have been better and uh, there should have been 
efforts made before now, but where are we at this stage? Well, they reckon there'll be a shortfall of 600 places in the next four weeks. We're already seeing people being turned away, processed and sent on their way and told to sleep on the streets or wherever they can find accommodation themselves. Uh, But by the end of March, the advice given to government is that in a worst case scenario, uh, there could be 19,000 people who have come to this country but have nowhere to stay. That's an incredible prospect, if ever there was. So, are there empty buildings uh, where we can put a roof over the heads of these people uh, who are in such desperate need? Let's speak uh, to the Chair of Mead County Council, Nick Killian, an independent councillor. Good morning to Nick, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Do you believe there are such buildings that would be suitable in County Mead? Um, I'm sure there possibly is one or two around the county. You know, they don't just come readily to mind. Um, obviously, I, I've spoken to the management team in Mead County Council this morning, and yes, they got the uh, letter and inst- instruction from uh, Roderick O'Gorman's office in relation to trawling the county to see what can be found. Um, I suppose from a Ukrainian perspective, um, we're probably fortunate that uh, the old HSE building in Kells uh, will be used uh, as a place for Ukrainian refugees coming into the country. Mm. And um, I'm sure the the good people of Kells will will give them a a warm and uh, welcome. Obviously, I I think one of the issues that's cropped up, obviously, over the um, last number of months is the lack of consultation with communities when this is happening. But as you said, we're in a crisis situation. Um, That is a horrific figure. You've mentioned, Michael, that we could have 19,000 people sleeping on the streets. That's totally unacceptable. Um, And 600 places required within the next four weeks. I'm sure there are buildings around the country. And and, and I'd say this morning uh, to... um, the people of County Meads who are listening to you this morning, Michael, that if they have any suggestions, if they see something in their in our towns and villages right across the county, north, south, east or west, mm. uh, to contact uh, Meads County Council and let them know. Um, you know, every 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 space uh, that that can be found uh, means it's less of somebody sleeping rough. Um, I- Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code presson25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and presson falsies. No, there are buildings. I maybe shouldn't be saying this, but I'm, I know Dalgan Park is there. Has any approaches been made to Dalgan Park? There might be space down there. Um, Gormanston is full because I've been in Gormanston last week. Uh, there's 245 uh, Ukrainian refugees over there I was at a function there last Friday right. and they're uh, ramping up to bring in um, to have 450 there by Easter Intense in, No, no, no not oh, intense right. okay. No, in the yeah. old Garmanston boarding yeah. school Okay, in, okay. Oh, but yes. no, not, mm. not the, no, no No, mm. not the army barracks mm. Mm. But okay. um, so like me this contributing in, in different ways Um there's buildings, you know, there could be buildings and towns and villages that I'm not just aware of. Mm. Uh, and I'd ask people to come up and, and talk about it locally. Yeah. Um, and look, we all realise that there's reactions against uh, some of these people coming into, into the country. But we have to set that aside. We have to think about these as people and where they're coming from and uh, the distress even coming into the country that they have and what they're after leaving families and war-torn facilities where for war-torn countries and they just want to live and, mm. and let live. Mm. Um, a very, a very, I mean, but your figure of 19,000 is really, really worrying. Oh, it's appalling, isn't it? Uh, that's uh, uh, it's report- hard to comprehend. Yeah, well, that's being reported by the Irish Times. I probably should have said that earlier on. Uh, it's a worst-case scenario predicted by the end of, of March, uh, and undoubtedly uh, that will have to do with uh, 14,000 people who are, I think are being accommodated in hotels at the moment. The hotels are to go back to tourism, and uh, there's uh, people arriving all of uh, the time. Um, they expect 4,000 more people to arrive into the country by the end of April. Uh, uh, and the numbers keep growing. I, I think uh, there is some suggestion that as many people will arrive this year as would have been the case last year, which will give you close to 200,000 new residents, if you like, in this country. Of the country. Mm. I mean, I, I note in, in uh, Minister O'Gorman's letter um, that he's looking for capacity of 50 to 100 or greater. Um, you know, that might be not possible in need but I think maybe why not 25 to 50 there might be some uh, of our organisations our voluntary organisations but, but the councils were the, the councils were asked to identify those type of buildings months ago uh, and I don't know we invited both Mead County Council and Louth County Council to come onto the programme uh, if they wanted uh, to appeal uh, for such accommodation, um, but there was no response really. Well, I, I'm appealing now today to the people of Mead to look at their own communities and see can they do anything? Is there anything that um, within our communities, within our community buildings, where a room might not be used, yeah. uh, that could be used, even as I said, for 20 or 30 people, yeah. get onto uh, Mead County Council, uh, the section dealing, dealing with that. Um, when the refugees came in for Ukraine last 
March, we were one of the first to, to bring them into the country and, and house them in our civil defence unit in, in Navan, and a great job was done at that particular time. Mm. So, I mean, you, you know, Mead's a big county, Michael, yeah. and there's a lot of towns and a lot of villages, and maybe within that there might be some community centre, there might be some GAA club yeah. that might have a room that they're not using. That's it, sports centres is one of the things. It could be a parochial hall, it could be anything like that. And Absolutely. it's also worth mentioning to people that, as well, if they have property themselves, uh, and they're willing to rent that, well, yeah, to rent it out, uh, I suppose, but yeah. uh, w- without the usual strings that go with taking in tenants, uh, that yeah. there's an €800 Euro month payment uh, to provide accommodation to Ukrainians. Um, I, I'm not sure of the figures, Michael. Yeah, 800 a month is what will be paid uh, for housing Ukrainians to people if uh, they can provide accommodation. Well, if there's people out there again, uh, because our Ukrainian friends, um, that that war is obviously not going to get any easier. It's not going to finish soon, and we will have flows of people uh, coming, still coming in there, even though it's been of a lower amount since Christmas on the Ukrainian side. Mm. But that could build up if the war uh, builds up again, mm. if Russia starts attacking the way they're talking about them mm. attacking and more people will, will come into the country yeah. but the one thing that I can say from speaking with the Ukrainian refugees how happy they are with the, with Ireland and how, the, how happy they are with the receptions they're getting I know people have concerns and I know there's pressures on schools there's pressures on doctors mm. uh, and there's pressures on communities but we're all working together we just have to try and get around it and help these people who are in bother and the international protection situation unfortunately as you said earlier it's we're obliged under the Geneva Convention and we have to accept that mm. and please God that if people do come into Mead on that side on the international protection side that they'll get a warm welcome and that uh, they won't be objected to yeah. Well I mean you know I think most of us were brought up uh, to think that we have to look after people in their time of need. There's a, a time to be charitable, there's a time to show compassion. And when people flee terrible situations in the world and are looking for international protection, on this scale, we really do need to step up to the mark. We need to be innovative. We need to show some vision. We need to think outside the box. We need to think what can be done. Is there something that can be made work so that we don't have 50 people or 19,000 people on the streets? And We are a good, we are a compassionate country. We are people who we're, we're good with people, we're good at receiving people, we've always done so because others have done that to us and we mustn't forget that, I know people don't want to hear that nowadays, mm-hmm. but when we were in bother in the 40s and the 50s and when we emigrated yeah. all over the world, we were welcomed Oh yeah, yeah. and uh, and those people are still there working and their families are still mm-hmm. there and Oh you think of the Irish who, who left during the famine, um, uh, who had nothing who are very desperate people and built America. Um, uh, but you don't have to go back that far, of course. Uh, I mean, you go to the 50s uh, and uh, the Irish built uh, England, England in particular, but, but the, the United Kingdom uh, and were looked after and sent money home. Uh, and that continued right into the 80s. My generation, we were in every corner of the world. Absolutely. And um, we, and I'm saying to the people of, of me today, you know, please look into your heart, yeah. talk to your neighbour, um, 
talk within your own, whether it's in a G8 club, a mm. soccer club, rugby club. What about the club. convent in Trim? Um, somebody says the convent in Trim and the old school uh, are both vacant. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, people can uh, come up with suggestions like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's suggestions and if people, even through my good self, want to write to me in, in Mead or contact me in Mead County Council, uh, you know, with ideas, mm. give them to us and I'll pass them on. Yep. We have a great team of people, um, a very compassionate team of people mm. led by our Director of Services and we, we'll look at everything. We'll take on board and we'll very try and see what yeah. we can do in Mead. Mm. And I'm sure the people allowed will, will do the same. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we can pass uh, on any suggestions uh, as well uh, to yourself or to the council or to Loud County Council if uh, that's uh, the uh, local authority that we're talking about. Uh, but two suggestions there. Maybe we'll hear some more and we'll certainly pass them on to yeah. you, Nick. Uh, but there is a very, very desperate situation, obviously. Absolutely. All right. And thanks for highlighting it this morning as well, Michael. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, to help us do that. Independent Councillor Nick Killian is uh, the Cahirla now, if you were listening to us uh, yesterday, you'd have heard parts of a very passionate and very personal contribution to the doll on the mother and baby homes redress scheme from Richard Boyd Barrett himself, somebody uh, who would have been in one of uh, the mother and baby homes. And he spoke about uh, the bond uh, that is created between mother and child at a very early stage and how that was destroyed by many of uh, these institutions and that uh, the state and the orders who ran those institutions were responsible and that, of course, it's only right now to compensate people for the harm that was done to them. But to exclude people from the redress scheme who spent less than six months in a mother and baby home, he said, is to discriminate against survivors of mother and baby homes. And we can hear just a, a little bit of what Minister Roderick O'Gorman had to say in response to that. I fully understand, and as I've said before, I fully understand there are survivors and there, there are survivors joining us today who aren't, uh, who, who, who aren't happy with the determinations made in terms of the ambush of, 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 of this scheme. Um, we as a government have made the point uh, that in terms of the engagement that we had and the engagement that was spoken about by deputies when we spoke to, 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 to survivors, when they gave their, their um, accounts of what they wanted to see in terms of the state response, as I've said before, that uh, each person's account, each person's recognition of what they want to see the state do is different. Many of those, particularly those who spend shorter times in these institutions, place their focus on the issue of information, on the fact that they've been denied their information for such a long period of time. And what the state has tried to do in terms of response to that has been the passage of the Birth Information and Tracing Act. And Deputy Carnes is absolutely right, and I'm, we, we, we aren't seeking to, to, to clap ourselves in the back in terms of, of the passage of that legislation. That legislation should have been passed many, many years ago. Roderick O'Gorman, let's speak uh, to Susan Lohan, co-founder of uh, the Adoption Rights Alliance. A very good morning to you, Susan. Thanks for joining us. Um, Uh, I'm just reflecting. I have never heard a greater disambiguation, a greater distortion of the truth from any government minister in the 20 plus years that um, I've been campaigning for, you know, adopted people's rights 
and for, you know, redress and a recognition of the damage that was done to them. Um, I was a member, well, I still am a member, but as far as I know, I, the, the group has never been stood down, of the Collaborative Forum, which was appointed to the Department of Children and Equality, ironically, back in 2018. And nowhere did any of us or any of the representative groups that uh, we sought advice from ever say that, well, we don't want redress, we don't want recognition of the damage done to us. We'll just have our information, thank you. What we did point out to the Minister was that we were absolutely frustrated at the ongoing discrimination of being denied our information in the 21st century, you know, from the the time that legal adoption was brought in in 1952. So it's just... I mean, I actually wonder, is Roderick O'Gorman, is he recruiting himself um, for the position of Thornishta or Taoiseach to take over from Leo Varadkar? Because I think what's, there's, an, there's an absolute similarity between the, the nursing home uh, charges scandal, the withholding of disability payment scandal uh, that we've been hearing about for the last two or three weeks, and how People, women and children, you know, the, the most vulnerable cohorts in society uh, were, were incarcerated in these inhumane institutions. And worst of all, that the children were rest, wrestled from the arms of their mother. And there is no recognition of the, the lifelong damage that that causes. Mm. Uh, one of uh, the things Richard Boyd Barrett did, uh, as you know, I'm sure Susan in his contribution, was use the words that were used to describe him being born out of marriage. Uh, and yeah. Ill- illegitimate was one of uh, the yeah. words uh, that he, he mentioned. Uh, and now it seems ironic that a redress scheme is being established, but many of those uh, who suffered as a result of the mother and baby homes are being told that it is not legitimate for them to apply to that scheme. You, you couldn't actually make it up. And, and this actually, the flaws in this scheme go all the way back to James Riley, uh, who was Minister for Health um, and then became Minister for Children. Um, in the 2011 Fine Gael Labour government. And he, I would say, contaminated and, and deliberately did so, contaminate the terms of reference for the investigation into mother and baby homes and related institutions. Now, uh, organisations such as Adoption Rights Alliance, the Plon Project, Mixed, mixed Race, Irish, in, uh, the Bethany Home Survivors, um, the Natural Mothers Network of Ireland, they, we were all at pains months leading up to the terms of reference being drafted that it was not, it was just, it was beyond cynical to, to just look at the conditions in the mother and baby homes. Uh, like I, if, as a six-month-old baby, you know, what six-month-old baby was going to have a conscious memory of the conditions in said institutions? They were hardly going to be commenting on the food or the heating or the bedding. What they were aware of um, unconsciously was that they had suffered the most traumatic loss that a human being can endure, and that is the loss of the the, the baby's mother because they perceived that as a death. And I think, you know, your average first-year 
university student of psychology or medicine even would be aware of that. We've seen it in neonatal wards for years where we encourage um, mothers to have skin-to-skin contact with their babies as mm. soon as possible. So, you it know, was, it, it was all hard, goes it was, back. it was hard to listen to what Richard Boyd Barrett was saying yeah. about mothers' yeah. breasts were being bandaged up so that they couldn't have that contact. Yeah. And even if we listen to the, the testimony of Philomena Lee, mm. um, you know, the, 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 the lovely woman who was the uh, central character in the film Philomena, mm-hmm. if we remember June Goulding's book, The Light in the Window, they all, they, you know, and all of the other uh, women who gave testimony to the flawed Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes, they talked about uh, women being used as wet nurses for other babies, but not allowed to nurse their own children, you know, because uh, the, the the nuns, the inhumane nuns who ran these institutions deliberately wanted to destroy the bond between mother and child. Now, in, in the four years that I was actively involved in the Collaborative Forum, you know, the advisory group to the uh, Department of Children and Equality, etc., um, everybody who was who had been either adopted, boarded out, fostered, sent to a, sent to an industrial school, you know, we all spoke about which you know that that kind of primal wound, as it were, mm. and that that's never recognised. We have all lived with the narrative that well, weren't we incredibly lucky? Should we were adopted or we were fostered and we were saved from some um, nebulous peril, you know, of being brought up by our natural mothers. I mean, it, you couldn't, you know, it's, it's, it's worse than discriminatory. It's, it's, it's insulting, it's demeaning, it's, it's, it's the continued discrimination against us. That's it, isn't it? the continued othering of us. It is the continuation of it, and I think that probably is uh, the point, because what happened uh, really doesn't make sense in this day and age. Uh, it's a good yeah. thing to be able to say that. And I'm sure that uh, when younger people in particular hear these stories, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't believe it or think you're exaggerating or yeah. whatever, because it is so yeah. ridiculous, actually. Yeah. Uh, you'd yeah. wonder what was wrong with these people. Uh, but but it's that continuation of it that you've had to live with. It's uh, yeah. that injury on top of injury. Yes. And, you know, if we listened to Michal Martin this week, you know, he... He was moaning in Leinster House that when are we going to stop, you know, punishing the current generation for the previous generation's sins? Now, actually, he should refer to the legislators' previous sins. This is part, you know, our legislators being accountable is part of a healthy parliamentary democracy. If we do not hold our politicians to account, well, you know, what, what future is is there for our mm. system? But this it isn't historical. Uh, I mean, uh, what we're talking about is a scheme that has been established by the government of yeah. the day. It is to address yeah. historical issues, uh, but this is a decision that is being made by Hall Martin as a member of the government because the cabinet takes yeah. collective responsibility uh, and yeah. there is no turning on this. Yes, and... You know, and, and I'm just, I'm so struck by the utter lack of empathy which Roderick O'Gorman has displayed during the various debates because he was left in no doubt. There was no ambiguity about the incredible uh, strength of feeling, strength of belief and our utter 
um, incredulity that he and his department would seek to exclude so many people. And that, Michael, that doesn't even uh, include the probably additional 40,000 people who were excluded because whilst they were forcibly adopted, they were never in a mother and baby home. They were in other institutions um, or they they were born in private nursing homes and immediately whisked away for forced adoption. So the numbers of people excluded from the scheme are probably double or maybe even three times the numbers of people included in the scheme. Okay, because that's 34,000 people. Yeah, yeah. And And the cost is 800 million. Uh, So if you double it, uh, are you talking about 1.6 billion euro? Is that what the problem is here? Is it down to money? Absolutely. And and that's, you know, and and if you look at uh, Micheál Martin's comments in the the last week on the nursing home scandal and the the disability payment scandal, that's all he is focused on. He said, oh, it's a legitimate um, policy um, or posture for a government to pursue in order to protect taxpayers. Well, actually, taxpayers have to also be accountable for the fact that they have elected these dreadful legislators, people who turned mm. a blind eye I know, but to I, the vast I'm sure very human su- rights abuses. Sure, I'm very surprised though to hear you never pay taxes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and Michael, the other thing I would like to say is, oh, if, if Michal Martin and this government wants to pursue that, that logic, that, so, that flawed logic, well, shall we now say to the disappeared, the families of the disappeared in Northern Ireland, sorry, we can't focus on you all. Could you, could you maybe go away into a quiet room and decide which percentage, which 50% of your group should we focus on, should we campaign on? Equally, when it comes to the events of Bloody Sunday and other atrocities committed by the British Crown against mm. Irish people. Shall we now say, well, actually, yeah, but yeah, look, we, we get that this might be inconvenient or embarrassing mm. for the British government. So, yeah, let, let's divvy up which of these scandals we're going to focus upon. OK, well, what now or what next? Because this is uh, the government's best effort, if you like, to close this yeah. terrible chapter in our history. Is that the end of it? Well, I just, you know, for the umpteen time, I just appeal to your listeners, even if those who are not directly affected by this, to contact their local representatives, particularly the ones in government. I mean, I think the opposition, the fact that they are speaking with one voice is telling and that we have, you know, people of incredible integrity, such as Catherine Connolly, um, Holly Kearns, Catherine Function, uh, Catherine, and Catherine, Catherine, sorry, Kathleen, Catherine Function yeah, yeah, yeah. is chair of the Joint the Rock This yeah. Committee on Children yeah. and has listened to every single minute of evidence given by the various survivor groups on the mother and baby um, home report, on the proposed redress scheme. And, you know, she, you know, she's the most avid listener. And, and, you know, the, the contributions of Richard Boyd Barrett as well have been very, very, very useful this week. But the problem with the majority government and, you know, people, you know, just sticking with the government whip, they're you know, the the government representatives will be the cowardly individuals we know them to be, even though if they sat back for five minutes and examined their conscience, they could not actually approve Roderick O'Gorman's dreadful scheme. 
Okay. Susan, I have to leave it there for the moment. Um, thank well, thank you. you, Michael. Thanks as always. Always appreciate it, Susan. Thank you. thank you. Susan Lohan is the co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. In touch to say that uh, the old school in Trim is already earmarked uh, for housing immigrants. Uh, another texter, though, saying uh, that there is an empty school in Monalty which uh, could be used for housing people. Thanks if you have been in touch with those suggestions. And you're welcome to contact us at any time, as usual. Our telephone number is 041983 You can text or WhatsApp 0861 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, as you probably know, a review of how the legislation that allows for abortions to be carried out in this country uh, is underway. It's due to be published on the 7th of February, or at least submitted to the government on the 7th of February, and the National Women's Council is asking that it would be published as soon as possible thereafter. Let's speak to Alana Ryan, who's the Women's Health Coordinator with with the National Women's Council. And a very good morning to you, Alana, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You don't believe uh, the legislation, leg- legislation, if I pardon, is working in the way that it should uh, be helping women in a, a time um, where it may be crisis or uh, they may just decide that they want to terminate a pregnancy for another reason. Absolutely, Michael. You know, this has been a really extensive evidence-gathering review. You know, we've spent over 12 months Uh, Looking at the abortion rollout, there's been numerous studies which have highlighted ongoing barriers to access, including from Dr. Catherine Conlon in Trinity College, the Unplanned Pregnancy and Abortion Care Study, and also from the WHO. They did a policy implementation study as well last year. And all of these pieces will be fed into Mary O'Shea, who is the independent chair of this review. And the key issues which are coming through are the adverse impact of the mandatory three-day wait, the difficulty in access to care after 12 weeks, there's a hard cut-off for abortion on request at 12 weeks, and the ongoing criminalisation of doctors, which um, has a huge chilling impact on our service providers. Right, it's what, four or five years since the referendum? Yeah, absolutely, 2018. Yeah. Uh, So the laws have been in place a a long time. What will this review do in terms of those laws or is that decided? uh, If it makes recommendations, will those recommendations be adopted? Well, I would sincerely hope that they would be adopted um, pending on what the evidence is saying because the whole purpose of this review was to take an independent look at our abortion rollout and to, to gauge what's working well in practice and we know some things are going very well. You know, the introduction of telemedicine has been very helpful, particularly for disabled women to be able to access care, women who are working in the gig economy and who may not um, be able to, to take time off to get to the GP. There are some really good um, parts of our rollout which which we should be celebrating, but um, crucially there are a number of barriers which still remain. And this independent review must then lead to political action and a commitment to evidence-led abortion reform following from this. Okay. Um, What if the recommendations are to make uh, abortion services more restrictive? 
Um, I don't think that's going to be the case. You know, last year the WHO brought out new abortion care guidelines, which are based on over four years of reviewing international literature and medical evidence in this area. And what the WHO is calling for is that um, abortion should be centred around the woman, um, the woman's needs and be a choice between a woman and her doctor and that doctors are empowered to be able to provide care to their service user based on the clinical evidence and uh, patient needs and best practice. Mm. And what we're seeing in Ireland is that our law and operation is quite a bit away from that. And one mm. of the key issues is the fact that we still use a criminal code. So doctors are um, prevented from providing care in a large number of circumstances. And this impacts on their um, ability to care for those who need it. And it also creates additional barriers to service users. And that's why we're still seeing so many women travel, uh, 775 women since 2019 when the, the rollout mm. began. Okay, uh, that's out of the country? Uh, absolutely, yeah. into Britain, yeah. Uh, and that's uh, without talking about the women who have to travel within the country. Uh, why is it that there are eight maternity hospitals in this country that don't provide abortion services? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because those are public maternity hospitals and they should be providing full care in line with the law. Mm. And um, ultimately, what we're seeing is that there are still maternity hospitals, particularly in the southeast um, and in the Midlands, which are not providing that. Yeah, and but why? Well, I mean, there are, you know, a variety of reasons. Conscientious objection is still a factor, sadly. So that's, you know, conscience-based refusal to provide care. And if, um, you know, the clinical lead in a particular hospital refuses to provide, that means it's very hard for the service to be deliverable. The clinical lead, that's one doctor, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, but but you need to have that expertise at the top of the team. And so what we've been saying is, Okay, if if one individual doctor decides that they do not want to provide this service, but then the HSE has to put in place another doctor who will because the barrier to the service user is immense. It means travelling very large distances. Any woman who Mm. is over nine weeks has to go into a maternity hospital. And so you could be talking about having to travel up to Dublin if you're living in Wexford because of the absence of provision locally in the maternity hospital. So that's ridiculous. It is. And, you know, the thing is, it's more challenging for certain groups of women. You know, if you're disabled, Mm. um, if you're reliant on public transport, if you are working, um, you know, in the gig economy and Mm. and you don't have secure um, sickness leave, these things are really challenging. So we really do need to see, um, you know, appropriate resources going into the hospitals Mm. as well, because that's another barrier. Sorry, Alana, but I'm sorry, it's just just absolutely ridiculous. I, I mean, why do we need a review? of services to change that. Surely that's down to the Minister of the Day uh, and if that requires introducing new legislation, well then it requires introducing new legislation but you cannot discriminate uh, against people in terms of the provision of health services based on geography, based on address. You can't say that you get cancer treatment in Cork but you don't get it in Belfast or that you get uh, abortion services in Dublin but you don't get them in Wexford. Absolutely. And, you know, I do think that there was value in doing um, 
research with service providers to, to unpick some of the issues because that gives us then the, the know-how to be able to chart a way forward in this area. And, you know, I know that there are particular issues in certain hospitals to do with, say, the theatre space um, and, you know, the accommodation issues. So so not having the actual clinical space to, to take um, forward abortion care. But, you know, I think it was important that there was a very significant strand around looking at service providers and, you know, the, the cha- challenges and barriers that they're facing, particularly, you know, in the maternity hospitals to service delivery. But what we do need now is a clear political pathway to take forward those recommendations. And that's why we want to see this going into the health committee um, so that it can get the proper scrutiny and engagement that is urgently needed and for the health committee to to provide a report to government before summer recess which gives us a clear direction of travel and a pathway for improvement. Okay, they're public hospitals uh, and they can be manned by people different to the people who have a conscientious uh, objection. What about GPs? Uh, Nine out of ten GPs don't engage with women who look to terminate a pregnancy. Uh, Should they be forced to? No, I don't think so. You know, I think that ultimately we do have conscience-based refusal to provide. And, I, you know, obviously at the National Women's Council, I'm very um, upset by that. And I really do think that we should see abortion as regular reproductive health care and that all women should be able to, to be supported by their local GP. But if it's the case that their local GP can't provide, and again, there's a number of issues around why they're not providing, not just conscience-based refusal, sometimes to do with resources and capacity, as we know, is affecting all GP um, operations across the country. But what we do really need to see is a, a clear referral pathway onward so that there's no delay to that woman uh, for uh, access to care. And, and really, the, the problem is that we just don't have an sufficient numbers of GPs. So particularly in rural Ireland, in the northwest, in the southeast, there are pockets where, where it's quite hard to get access to a GP and that adversely impacts the service user. So we need to be giving GPs more support to step up and provide this care. OK, well, the Minister is to receive... Uh, this review next Tuesday I think Alana we leave there thank you as always for joining us on the programme Alana Ryan Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland Michael Reed on LMFM As I'm sure you've been hearing in February of 1988 Aidan McInesby was on his way to uh, GAA club in County Tyrone when he walked through a security checkpoint and was shot dead by a uh, British soldier David Jonathan Holden who is now 53 years of age and walked free from court yesterday. Andre Murphy, Deputy Director with Relatives for Justice joins us now and a very good morning to you Andre thanks for joining us on the programme. Was justice served? Hiya Michael I I think um, for all of us what our thoughts our thoughts are just going to be sitting with the Mac and SPs today because as you say they have been on such a long journey losing Aidan at the age of 22 years in 1988 and they always knew that there needed to be justice for Aidan but they were always told that none would be available for them and they have fought every step of the way to get to the place where they were yesterday and you know ultimately they have achieved what many many other families have not been able to achieve in a court 
they have they have sat while a British soldier yeah. has been found guilty of the killing of Aidan, and that hasn't been available to so many other families, and they are so aware of that too, and that is down to their to their tenacity and never ever giving up. So for them, they are very aware that. What they have done is quite remarkable, but also that they have lost other members of the family along the way, their sister Ailish in particular, mm. who was just the most amazing human rights advocate and fought for Aidan, and also the parents, John and Minnie, you know, so they're sitting with that. But of course, they and so many other families are so disappointed at mm. a very, very lenient sentence of but you know there has been a measure of accountability they have achieved um, something in those courts mm. and that says to other families never to give up as well you know that tra- that justice and accountability is every single family's right no matter who killed their loved one and you know if if it is allowed yeah. then then it can be served through the courts um, and it's no, no surprise and no coincidence that yesterday their thoughts moved to all of the other families who might not have these avenues available to them mm. because of the legacy bill yeah. um, that is making its way through the, through the Houses of Parliament at yeah, the minute. No doubt. So it was so generous of them yesterday to yeah. think of those other families. It really was. I, I was totally amazed uh, to see them speaking after the ruling. Um, it was an incredible sentence uh, that it was a suspended sentence. Uh, given um, the excuse uh, that was offered, uh, it was raining, his hands were wet and accidentally fell on the trigger, uh, which then fired the gun three times and one of them in Aidan McNesby's back. Look, you know, I mean... It's cock and bull. From the day, listen, from the day and hour that it happened, the family was, weren't, weren't interested in any of that sort of yeah. guff. They weren't interested in the cover-up that mm. they, that immediately swung into place as it does with all state yeah. killings. You know, they weren't interested in that. They saw through all of that and they knew that Aidan had been murdered and they mm. fought every why, step why, of the why, way. Why, why, why wasn't this man charged with murder? I mean, the, no, the court no. said that was nonsense. And Well, this is it. You know, and if you, if you are sitting and your loved one has been killed with the British Army, by the yeah. British Army, you know there is an apparatus of impunity that swings into place. Yeah. Straight away, you get the you get the propaganda that comes up that says that the person who was killed was at fault, mm. was guilty, not the person who shot them. Then you have to go through the perfunctory investigations that are not investigations. You have to go through, and in recent times, all of the stalling, all of the destructions of evidence, all of the lies, and then mm. all of the legislation that's put into place to prevent you getting anywhere near justice. That family, the McInnesbys, knew that that is exactly what they were going to face mm. in 1988 because they'd seen all of the other families what they faced, and that's what they stood up against. Do you, so, you know, do you, do you even think, though it's inadequate, you, it's still a huge achievement. Do you think that the British Army uh, should have a, a minimum wage, a minimum age uh, for recruits uh, that you shouldn't join the army until you're 25 or, or 30? Uh, because I couldn't understand the mitigating factor that a British soldier wasn't guilty or uh, wasn't as guilty uh, as an older British soldier. The fact that this man was 18 at the time, he was a soldier. Uh, He he was a trained soldier. Uh, How could that be a mitigating factor? Well, you know, if we're going to talk about what the British Army should do, the British Army basically shouldn't have been there in the first place. The British Army shouldn't have been, you know, had an apparatus where they could send out soldiers who could 
injure, um, torture and kill Irish citizens with total impunity for the entirety of our conflict. Um, you know, there's a whole load of things that the British Army could or should not do or do. Mm. And the British government certainly should be holding uh, their own human rights laws mm. up when it comes to the killing of Irish citizens, but they never, ever have. Instead, yeah. they have this whole veneer of investigation, a veneer that they care about um, mm. Irish lives, and they never have. I don't you know, know much so about the court case other than the reports in the papers, Andre, and uh, I was hoping that maybe you'd be able to make sense of this for me, because from what I'm reading, uh, this judgment is unbelievable, particularly when the judge uh, said that Holden showed no remorse he doesn't appear to be sorry at all for this. But he not only is he not sorry, the entirety of the British establishment in order to... The, that establishment moves to justify what he did, justify him not going to jail, justify the putting aside of all of the basics of law and order. They put that aside because in their, they, their heads is that that all of these actions are justifiable. They need to justify that before they begin anything. So, you know, him as an 18-year-old or him as a 53-year-old has not been supported to understand that he took the life of a 22-year-old Irish citizen by shooting him in the back and that that was wrong. He is not supported to do that. He is supported to do the exact opposite and to deny truth and to deny justice. And that is exactly the experience of every other person who's been affected by British state violence on this island. And it's a culture and it's a regime and it informs what's happening with the legislation that's going through British, uh, the mm. British legislature at the minute. Yeah, I, I take it uh, this is uh, the last uh, British soldier who'll be brought before a court uh, for crimes committed during the Troubles. Well, I mean, there's still the soldier F for Bloody Sunday. That's, a, you know, that's still happening and is in progress. You know, there, it is very possible that we would that if the legislation got out of the way, we would see other, other prosecutions mm. as well. It's you know, this, this, is, this is not over. You know, okay. and mm. it's only a couple of weeks since Keir Starmer in Belfast said that if he was elected, he would put aside the legacy legislation. The families won't give up and they can certainly see a new administration will insist on truth and justice. OK, Andre, I have to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Andre Murphy, Deputy Director with Relatives for Justice. That's our programme for today and for this week. Maggie McGuire Research, Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme Tuesday morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.